about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. I'm back. Uh, We are talking about our work and how the Lord relates to that. Uh, We're talking about living between grace and glory. That's what we talked about last week, the time in which we work. We live between Christ's comings, and that is definitive for the way we work. We work uh, in light of his work, in light of the grace that has come, but the final glory that is coming. We live in the in-between, and we are to work as if we live there, work as if the work of Christ has happened, and live in light of it, and try to spell out its beauty in all kinds of wonderful ways. Uh, Tonight, though, I want to think about something in particular, and that is to do with our identities. I think there's a particular pressure placed upon our identities in this age as we work, and at this particular time in history. And it has to do a little bit with the type of economy that we are part of. So just bear with me for one second as I make a, a, a comment about our economy. Because we live in this very specific type of capitalism, Old school capitalism was, I'm going to make shoes and make insurance and sell it to people, right? Goods and services sold on, and you want to maximize sales and those kind of things. In that type of economy, what you did was pay your workers well or threaten to take their jobs. They're the two ways to kind of retain people, okay? Goods and services kind of capitalism. We don't live in a capitalism dominated by that anymore. We live in what you'd call finance-dominated capitalism in which the big thing being sold are different financial products that you need to maximize or minimize. Minimize risk and maximize product. Now, what this has done is fundamentally changed the way most companies treat their employees. It's not enough anymore to just pay people well or threaten to take their jobs. What you need is not people who make enough things. You need people who maximize every moment of their day to do their job the absolute best. And so what companies have begun to do is to sell to employees that the thing the company is making is the most important thing in their life. Now I'm going to pick on a company and I'm going to do this at danger of being someone getting annoyed at me. 
I'm going to pick on KPMG just for a minute, and Stars is going to get annoyed at me, and probably Charlie Hunter as well. But I'll wait for their fan mail a bit later. KPMG went on this drive to maximize worker engagement across the whole company. And they ran a really interesting campaign. It's in Harvard Business Review what they did. Here's what they did. So last year, we embarked on an initiative to build a stronger emotional connection to the firm, to have our people look at their work from a different perspective. It started with a simple question. What do you do at KPMG? And a video that answered, we shape history. It's really interesting. I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for this. But get this right. See the wording right. An emotional connection to work. Because what we do here is shape the way things are. What you do here is of ultimate significance. This kind of storytelling around mission is not just KPMG, it's everywhere. It's part of an economy where you need workers to maximize their potential and their time in every way. You are what you do. You are as much as you can do it. Your productivity, your maximization is everything in this economy. Now, this has not just become something about work. This has become something about life. Catherine Tanner, in her wonderful book, Christianity in the Spirit of New Capitalism, says this. Whether at home, at the store, or at work, one should be the sort of person who assumes responsibility for making the most of what one has in the ever greater achievement of self-realization and self-fulfillment. All such assembled personal assets are to be put to maximal, efficient use for the greatest possible profit in one's person, to maximize personal growth, to produce an ever-increasing gross domestic product of one's own person. Basically, our economy is driving us to think of ourselves in our work, at home, and in every part of our lives as profit maximizes. We are what we do. We are as productive as we can be. That is the definitive thing about being human. That is the definitive thing that is most important about you. This has become the air we breathe. And when I read this in Catherine Tanner, I was terrified because this is exactly how I live my life. I'm always doing every task at work, thinking of how I can do it good in one place, but also use it somewhere else. I'm always thinking about how to choose activities and books to read for more than one purpose at all the time. I thought I was just being a good Christian and doing the Lord's work. Turns out, our economy has taken hold of the way I understand myself and my work. Now, if only in the New Testament there was a type of person whose identity was defined by the economy that the Apostle Paul spoke to. Oh, wait, there is. He spoke to slaves whose whole identity was determined by the economy of ancient society. And he says to them something absolutely wonderful. He says to them, you do not belong to what you do. You belong to the Lord. It is not about your productivity, it's not about your status, it's not about who your master is, you belong to him. And he sought to completely reinvent them and the way they worked by their understanding of their relation to Jesus. And so I want to unpack that tonight 
as a way of freeing us from what our economy might be teaching us. Four things about that from the slaves. Passage from Colossians, it's on your handout. You got on the way in. The first thing is this. Slaves and masters were equally under Christ. Let me talk a bit about slavery in the Old Test- uh, New Testament just for a moment. Because it's actually very important what Paul does here. He does something quite profound. You see it at the beginning and the end of this passage. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Right, That's what he says, adhering to slaves. And then masters at the end, 4 verse 1, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. It's the word Lord behind that, really interestingly. You have an earthly Lord. Lords provide your, you know, you have a Lord in heaven. There's something happening here. The insertion of the word earthly, making the slave's master not ultimately important, the insertion of a master above masters, as if there was someone higher who masters had to actually cling to, were reportable to. What Paul is doing here is actually turning everything on its head. He's going after this structure of slaves and masters by suggesting there's actually another person to consider that changes everyone's status. Everyone's master according to Paul, is actually the Lord. The slave has a real master, the Lord, and the master has a master, and he is also the Lord. Now, this was fundamentally remarkable for the ancient reality of slavery. Now, two things we can do wrong when we think about passages like this and slavery. The first thing is we kind of import a vision of modern slavery back onto ancient slavery. Modern slavery, in lots of ways, is about trading your labor for livelihood, and it's inherently oppressive. But ancient slavery was a part of the economy. Households were the economic producers of the day. And the only way you could produce enough as a house to sustain yourself and provide for others was to have slaves in your house. They were the only way to increase output. They were the only labor market available. And it was unimaginable to have an economic society without them. So they become closer in a lot of senses to domestic servants or as a form of employment. It's a very different reality. The other mistake we make is we expect the ancient Christians, particularly in the New Testament, to kind of call for legal reform. That's the type of legal reform that William Wilberforce brought about to abolish slavery as if that was the only way that you could kind of do away with the reality of slavery. But the ancient Christians didn't think like that, nor is the logic of the New Testament like that. When this sort of passage was read out in the early church, what they heard was the radical abolishing of slavery by the reality of the gospel. It was the call of Christ that changed everyone's standing. Here's Oliver O'Donovan saying it better. The Christians knew that the church itself was a society without slave, master or slave within it. And that this society of equals was so palpably real that the merely legal and economic relation of master and slave had only a shadowy reality beside it. 
That's to say, the reality that everyone belonged to Christ made the economic reality look pathetically weak and nothing. They understood this as freeing slaves in the most fundamental and wonderful way. And it is our freedom too. We do not belong to what we do. We do not belong to the economic status we have. It does not matter if you are a cleaner or you are a CEO. All of us equally can come under the Lord and take up residence under him. And all of us then can take a different position in the work we have been given. Because the second reality is this, that slaves were freed by their service of Christ. You see this all through the passage. Have a look at it. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything with a reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Literally, it is the Lord Christ for whom you are slaving, is the verb. Not just serving, slaving, living as a slave. What Paul is saying here is that the ultimate master of the slaves is the Lord Jesus. And the one whose ultimate employment they are in is his, and who they work for, and everything they do is for him. This hails back to a verse just before it, from Colossians 3.17, where Paul says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything Paul says can be done in the name of Jesus. Everything can be given thanks for, according to Paul. No matter how mundane, no matter how simple, no matter how complex, all of it can be done in the name of Jesus. And the logic of this runs even further back in the book of Colossians. In chapter 1, Paul explains how Jesus is the image of the invisible God and everything has been created through him and for him. You see, what this means is that the lordship of Jesus means that plumbing was made through him and for him. Marketing was made through him and for him. Banks were built for him and universities and public insurance offices. Nothing that has been created was created without him. Nothing that has not been made was not made for him. So whether you are sweeping the streets or you are parenting, you can work for him. Why? Because it's already his. Every industry, every task, everything. For him to be Lord means there is no patch of reality over which he does not cry, that is mine. And so the slaves in Colossae were summoned saying, When you're cleaning the toilets, when you're harvesting the grain, when you're cooking the evening meal, when you're in the schoolhouse with the master's children, all of these things, in all of these things, you are working for the Lord. None of these things are too little for him. None of these things are too great for him. You can do all of them in his name. 
as an act of worship and service to him. Because they're for him. They're through him. It's him you are really serving. I think this is a comfort. In those moments in your job, when you did a really good job and no one cared, absolutely no one noticed and no one cared, how well you delivered that lesson or how well you delivered that product in a timely manner. Do you know, at the, at the end of every day, you can lift your head to heaven and say, here's what I did, and I did it, Lord, for you. And at the end of that day, it does not matter who else saw it, because you did it for him. This is a comfort, isn't it? It lifts us out of the mundane sense we have about work and, and the frustrations we have with being overlooked. But, but perhaps it's also a challenge. Perhaps we can be serving others in our work. If I'm being really honest, often I am working in and for my own name, even as a pastor rather than the Lord's. There is something hardwired into me, and it's always been there, a deep desire to be something, to be significant to some people in some way. And if I'm really honest, some of my overwork is driven by a need to serve that name. I don't know if that's true for you. There's many other versions of the same thing, many other things to slave after comfort and security and hope for a better future and a better livelihood in it. But friend, you need not serve any of those things. You are in his service. So if we're in the Lord's service, what does that mean? Well, well, Paul says this. We are to engage ourselves, our full selves in our work. Here's where Paul gets a bit counterintuitive with the slaves, doesn't he? He says... Obey your earthly masters, not only when their eye is on you. Do it with sincerity of heart. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. These are really interesting phrases that speak of the way that Paul says that the slave should really deeply engage with their work. It sounds a bit too close to our own culture, doesn't it? As if Paul is summoning us to high productivity, to, to do the utmost. But I'm not quite sure that that is actually what Paul is saying here. I think Paul is actually going back to the reality that we actually need work. The way we find ourselves in some meaningful way always is through doing work. You know, when God created humanity in Genesis chapter 2, he made them to work. In Genesis chapter 2, the Lord formed a man, Adam, in Adam. In the Hebrew, that's the word for man, from the dust of the ground, the Adamah. They're related. The man and the land. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. This is a very, very subtle piece of writing that suggests that we were made to work and care for God's earth. That work is a fundamental part of us. That in some ways our humanity is realized through the task of labor. 
And that work is a fundamental good for us. And therefore, it's actually hard to, to come to a full understanding of yourself and your identity apart from working. It's actually why worklessness and unemployment is so harmful to us often. To be out of work or to be searching for work is so brutal. Because we were made to find ourselves by doing something. That's what Paul is reflecting here. He's summoning the slaves who could in some way kind of sit back from their work <coughs> and do it in a half-hearted fashion and do only what they needed to do. And he actually says, no, no, engage yourself with it. I don't think he's saying work really, really hard and overproduce. I think he's saying bring you to your work. Personally engage your passions and your talents and your life with your work. You know, the Lord has not placed you, the Lord has placed you in that Zoom call that's going to go wrong tomorrow. You. Because he wants your intelligence and talents and calm gentleness to be there. For you to bring yourself to that meeting to help it flourish. The Lord has placed you in that classroom tomorrow with that kid. You know that kid. Because maybe it's the exact bringing together of your truth-telling and yet patience that they really need. They need you. The Lord needs you to engage yourself with that task of teaching that boy or that girl. What the slaves are being summoned to do is to bring themselves to their work. Not to overwork, but to genuinely engage with it. To let who they are engage with their work. See, here's the the secret of, of calling that we get wrong all the time. There's not some secret job out there that you need to find. The Lord is asking you to engage yourself with the things that are right in front of you. That's what it means to work with sincerity and from your heart as for the Lord. To give the gift of yourself to the work that is in front of you. Do you know, you can't do that if you're overworking. You can't do that if you're running yourself into the ground because that will crush and destroy you. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Not overproductivity, but bringing yourself to your work, engaging yourself deeply in the things that are in front of you for the sake of them and for the sake of your Lord. And as the slaves were summoned to do this, they were given a remarkable promise. They and we are to look for an inheritance from Christ. Do you know the worst thing about being a slave? When you were a little boy or a little girl in a house of a master, you would grow up right alongside a son and a daughter of the master. And both of you would work your whole lives in the same house. But at the end of the day, it was the son or the daughter that would inherit everything. And at the end of the day, the slave would have nothing. Nothing. No inheritance. No real share in the master's house. They slaved away in the end for not much. They led a precarious existence in that way. And that's why what Paul says here is actually very striking. Since that you know, you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. 
It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Just think your way into being an ancient slave for a moment and feel the beauty of that. The one thing that no master could ever give you, Jesus was giving you. Earlier in Colossians, Paul says, that giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. You see, at the end of the day, it does not matter how much you do in this life, how high you climb, how much you achieve, how much you shape history, the world, or the future. There is nothing you can do in this life that will give you the inheritance that Jesus will freely give you as a reward. A reward not based on the merit of the things you have done, but based on his grace and generous provision for you, his worker. Everything that you have and you need, he will finally give to you. And so you need not anxiously fret your way through this life, thinking that you always have to make and be more to finally be something or to have a secure place. Because only the Son who has rescued us out of darkness and brought us into, the, into his kingdom and you see, when your heart realizes that your inheritance and your identity and your security is in him and not in your production, that you can live in the midst of this weird capitalist economy, giving yourself freely to the tasks in front of you, not in service of your name or in service of your future or in the service of your significance, but in the service of him, knowing that he will give you your inheritance and that he is ultimately your Lord. So when you finish work tomorrow, hold it in your hands and say, Jesus, it was not much, but it was for you. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.